Welcome to the Drink Less, Live More podcast. If you are someone that is wanting to evaluate your relationship with alcohol, you've come to the right place. You don't have to call yourself anything. We don't have to use any labels. You're just someone that knows something isn't working for you and you want to make an intentional change. Let's go. Welcome back to Drink Less, Live More. I wanted to remind all of you just what this podcast is. I know there's quite a few new listeners and maybe you haven't followed my entire entire journey. So I just wanted to share a little bit more about the podcast. It is not a sobriety podcast. It actually has nothing to do with sobriety. It has actually not that much to do with alcohol and everything to do with I think how we relieve our own stress, um, the lies that we've been told around alcohol, how it's supposed to help that stress, and really just having you reflect and reset or hit the pause button on this relationship with alcohol. Alcohol. So it's a safe space for you to just pause and explore. I didn't know how much I was just going through the motions until I took a year off of alcohol. And I just realized how much it was just like assumed that I would walk home from work and open a bottle of wine and drink it before I even knew what happened. And so that's what this is really for. It's not about sobriety. It's not about saying that alcohol is evil. It's really just about you doing what's best for you and exploring this thing where you wouldn't be listening if you didn't have a little nudge inside of you where your soul is kind of just like, hey. I don't know if this is the best thing for me right now. Maybe it doesn't have to be forever, but I'm curious enough to take a break. So that's really the purpose of this podcast. I personally could not find anyone talking about it in this way when I was first on my journey. And that's why I created it, because I felt like there was this so this space where there's so many gray area women out there, gray area drinking women out there that feel like they want to change, but they just don't know how to unravel all of the social stuff. And just that's what they've done all of their adult life for entertainment. And they don't know what to do without it. And they have social anxiety and all these things come up. So it's way deeper than just being like, oh, well, if you don't want to drink, then you should just be able to stop. There's just so much more to it. So I want to get into kind of what it really is, (laughs) because I know it's not really truly about the alcohol. And this is something I talk about a lot in more of my corporate work that I do. And something I've been talking to just a lot of friends, fellow coaches about. And I think it's the through line. I'm getting clear on the through line of of my business and everything that I do. But I think it's the through line for everything that I do. And that is called self leadership. And yes, the self is capitalized intentionally. So when we look at self, lowercase, that feels a little less deep. It feels kind of like their socialized version of ourselves. If you have not listened to the episode about social and essential self, listen to that one and you'll understand what I'm saying there. That feels like more of our socialized version of ourself. Capital S-E-L-F is that person that you know is inside, like that part of your spirit or soul that's just like, I know the answer here. 
So it's much deeper. It's like we got to quiet all that other noise and all the ways we've been socialized to believe certain things so we can hear that true inner knowing, that soul that we have inside of ourselves that's bigger than our bodies and this persona we've created um, in the world. So that's why I call it capital self. So I'm going to go through six areas that I've just captured. I'm actually literally looking at a whiteboard because I've written all this down and it's taken me probably six months to really refine it to where it's at. And I don't know, it's probably going to continue to be refined. I've been doing keynote talks around this subject and it's been interesting just to see the reactions and people like, oh, do you think about this? I was thinking about this when you were talking about it. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I need to add that in there. So that's been really fun. Um, so I would love to actually hear from any of you that listen to this and you're like, Rachel, you got to add this. This is something when you said self-leadership, capital self-leadership, this is something I thought about. So I'm going to go through these six and just kind of talk about what these six are. For me, part of self-leadership was drinking less. That was part of leading myself. Part of leading myself has been the Enneagram because that's been such a huge self-awareness tool for me. Um, so that's part of the work I do. You know, there's just so many things here that I think are just part of self-leadership and alcohol and drinking less just happened to be one of those pieces. It's just a small piece. It's not as, as huge as it was at one point. So I think we have to learn to tackle some of these when we are in a space that we can tackle them, right? I kind of knew for a long time that I'm like, now's not the time for cutting back my drinking. I wanted to cut back my, my drinking for a long time, but I was just kind of like, I just don't think now's the time. And dang, November 1st of 2020, I knew now was the time. So keep that in mind too. I do think that we have to, we can't overwhelm ourselves. Like there's only so much we can do from a personal development standpoint. So we have to kind of pick and choose those areas that we're going to put a little more energy into. So my first area of self-leadership is emotional intelligence. I'm not going to go too deep into this one. I think we know this. I've talked a lot about emotional intelligence on the podcast. But when I said, you know, self-awareness and social awareness, those types of things are all kind of encompassing with emotional intelligence. Um, you know, the feelings wheel that I often use with people where I had to use that because I truly had like a five-year-old vocabulary for how I was feeling. And I just, I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know how to experience it. And I was in my mid-30s when I first started exploring this and really starting to really, truly grow emotional intelligence. And, you know, I think being a nurse for so many years, and at one point I worked in a pediatric ICU, I think I just learned to stuff really hard feelings because they just felt so painful. I'm a deeply feeling person. And I think I learned to stuff those down because they were so, they felt so painful to me. Although not addressing them was what was painful. <laughs> so yes, they're painful in the moment, but that pain does dissipate if we allow it to be there. So that's been such a huge thing for me. I think as we have more and more disruptive life events. That's really was the catalyst for me starting to do this work was just a major disruptive life event that I couldn't recover from on my own without some help and without some growth and without learning to feel what I needed to feel. I had to grieve the loss of my daughter. So I didn't 
I didn't know how to do that. And so I had to do that. So I think that can be a catalyst for it. I also think you can do this work whenever you want to do it. This is something you can practice every single day. You can practice it with the person at the grocery store that talks to you because you can hear the deeper pain points behind what they're talking to you about. Um, I hear this a lot with people where they're like, oh, I don't really need anything, but I just wanted to get out of the house. And I'm like, oh, I think they might be lonely, you know? And then they go on to say, my husband died last year. And it's like, oh, okay, this is so much deeper than just wanting to get out of the house. If you pay attention to that stuff all day long, you can practice the crap out of emotional intelligence. So I'm going to move on with that one because I think we all kind of know what that is. The second pillar is disruption or being a disruptor. And I'll tell you what I mean about that. So when I was talking about that social um, essential self connection that Martha Beck talks so beautifully about and totally shifted my thinking, this is what I'm talking about. You know, there's this status quo in the world of like, this is just how it is. You know, like we're sold this bill of goods of like, this is how it is. And I kind of started blowing all of that up seven or eight years ago. Like, is it really how it is? Because that is not my experience. I checked off all the damn boxes for life. I did all the things I was told to do. And I'm driving into work hoping to get into a car accident. So somebody's lying to me or I'm doing this thing wrong. And for a while, I thought I was doing this thing wrong. And now I believe somebody's lying to me. (laughs) So that's just not the whole picture. That's so simplistic to think that if we just do these set things, then we're going to be happy. That is not how it works. I often think about all the things I learned in school and the things my kids are coming home with learning at school. And I'm like, never going to use that. Like, I, you know, and I was thinking that while I was learning it, too. And sometimes they'll say that. And I'm like, yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know that you ever will use that again. Like, I, you know, I don't think you will. And so we're kind of told if you do those things, if you get the certain college degree, if you get this kind of job, you know, everything is going to work out. Um, I think to give you a good example as a disruptor of something that my family did or my husband and I did, because this is that goes against the social culture. Um, my husband was snoring. It was probably, I don't know, three years ago. He was snoring horribly. And I had taken my year off of drinking. You know, I was not drinking and he still was and he was snoring and I couldn't sleep. And I was like, this is not working. We cannot do this. So he was sleeping in our basement bedroom. It sounds worse than what it is, but it, you know, it does feel a little like dungeony. You know, there's a window and stuff in there, but he was sleeping in our basement bedroom so that way I could get sleep. And um, he was like, I don't know, probably a few months ago, he's like, I don't really want to keep doing that. And he's like, but I also don't want to keep waking you up. But he's like, I'm kind of worried about our marriage if I sleep in the basement. And I'm like, I'm worried about our marriage if you don't sleep in the basement or we don't do something about this snoring because sleep is so incredibly important to me. <laughs> and my kids were older. I wasn't waking up with little kids anymore. I'm like, damn it, now's my time. I want sleep. I am an Olympic sleeper and I want to be able to use that skill and sleep the way I want to sleep. So he ended up going off and getting a sleep study. And sure enough, he wears a seatbelt now. So he sleeps in the same bed as me. But, you know, when I was first telling people about that, you could see like these horrified looks on their face like, oh, your marriage is in trouble. And I would say back, you know, I'm actually more worried about our marriage if we don't fix this. 
And I heard a statistic, and I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard that 20% of relationships end up breaking up or dissolving because of sleep issues. And I'm like, what? So then what are we doing here? So we're willing to give up a relationship with somebody that we love because we're just pissed off that we're not sleeping and we're truly not able to function the way we want to function because we're not sleeping. So that's the things I'm talking about, this disruption. And then obviously, we are disruptors by saying that we don't want to drink as much alcohol or that maybe alcohol isn't everything we've been told that it is. Maybe it's not actually helping us. Um, we're, we're challenging that. That is still the status quo in our culture, that alcohol is good. Um, it's a great thing. Only responsible people can really drink it. So you must be a very responsible person if you can drink it and, you know, not completely ruin your life. And, you know, I think many of us are waking up to that to say, like, I don't know if I'm accepting that anymore. There was a time where cigarettes were fully accepted as this wonderful thing to do. Classy. I can't imagine smoking a cigarette today, you know, but I at one point even in my lifetime thought it was a like sexy, classy thing to do. So that's what I'm talking about with challenging the status quo. If there's something that doesn't add up for you, explore that and actually figure out what your own truth is and do that. Who cares what the world says you should be doing? They don't know you. They don't know your life. So challenge it all. Disrupt it all. The next one is around mindset. You know, we hear this all the time. I think it's almost just so cliche, but it's not wrong. We have to have a mindset that sets us up for success. And, you know, I think sometimes having even a mantra, you know, that we can recite to ourselves and it can change, you know, over time, it can change every day, whatever that means. But I think that can be really helpful just to have this sort of, you know, mindset of, how your day is going to go, how your life's going to go. I mean, if you think your life's going terribly, it's probably going to keep going terribly. If you think your relationship is terrible and it's going terribly and it's not going to work, it's probably going to continue down that path. And I'm not telling you to lie to yourself. I'm just saying maybe we need to pause for a minute and really check in with our mindset. If everything is awful, and everything is this catastrophic event, and everything is the worst case scenario, there's probably some opportunity here to check in with mindset. So to give you just an example of that, I was recently doing a keynote talk on self-leadership, and I woke up in the morning thinking, I have to drive all the way to this place. It's an hour away. I got to go talk to all these people. And I pause for a minute and I'm like, wait a minute, I get to drive and I get to go talk to all of these other women business owners. What a freaking opportunity. And I am not kidding you, everything shifted. Like my whole body shifted. I had this energy. I was like, bam, up out of bed, getting ready. You know, everything was happening because of just that quick pause to say, no, I don't have to go talk to these people. I get to. And they even pay me to do this. I mean, this is amazing. I get to do this. So that's what I'm talking about. And I think when it comes to alcohol, it can be like, well, I can't drink. I have to quit drinking for a month because I drink too much in December. Well, of course, that's going to be misery the entire time you're not drinking. 
But if you look at it as I get to not drink, what a different way to position yourself. What a different way to move through the world. I get to not drink. I sent out my newsletter this morning or I wrote the newsletter and it was all about choosing to drive, like volunteering to drive. Because then, you know, like I'm only going to have one drink if I have a drink or none, you know, so because I'm the driver. So, you know, I was thinking about that and it's like I could have come into that like, oh, I have to I have to drive everybody because I said I was going to and I keep my word. I have to drive. But all I was thinking was I get to drive tonight. I was excited about it. I had my husband drive us down there and I drove us home, dropped the friends off and it was beautiful. It was wonderful. I get to drive tonight, which also means I get to wake up hangover free. Wonderful. So mindset is a huge part of this. We have to check in with that. And I can get down to a negative mindset. I don't know. I wouldn't say fairly easily, but I can get stuck in that slump where it's like, that's all I'm thinking is something negative. And that's just not really who I am. So it's like, ooh, I got to get out of that one. The next one is around self-compassion. I know I've talked to you all about this one. I just think this is so critical. I don't care what you're doing in life. It can have nothing to do with cutting back drinking. I just think there's a a direct relationship with self-compassion and just the idea of failing. We're so scared of failure and so unwilling to fail that we don't do things we want to do. We don't try that hard thing. We don't go and do the talk that we're a little bit scared to do. I'm always scared to walk on a stage. Always. I don't know if that'll ever go away. Maybe it will. I've been doing it for five years. There's always a little bit of fear there. There's always, it it always exists. But I do it anyway because I'm not afraid of failing because I failed so much. And I just look at it as all opportunity. Like it's almost even the word failure means something different than it did even three or four years ago. So I think we have to reframe what the heck a failure actually is. And we can see it more as opportunity. We can still call it failure, but I don't have a problem saying, oh, I did this thing and it failed because it doesn't feel hurtful to me. That feels like, okay, I did this thing because I'm brave and bold. And you have to put yourself out there to ever have a failure, right? Like you have to do brave and bold things to ever fail at something, period. The other thing I was thinking about and what I put in the talk, which I think is a good sports analogy anyway, and just kind of connecting to, oh, yeah, like the best people in the world have to fail. Um. So when you look at the the list of NBA players that have missed the most shots, so they've taken an incredible amount of shots, but they've also missed the most shots. Many of those same players are also on the highest scoring list. So Kobe Bryant is high up on the list, LeBron James, Michael Jordan. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if Michael Jordan took a shot, missed it, and ran down the court thinking, oh, man, I'm so terrible. I suck at this. What was I ever thinking? What a failure. I'm never taking another shot again. I should pass the ball the next time I come down the court. No. He took the ball back down the court and learned from his last shot, made the shot, and drained the three. And you could see in his eyes, give me the ball. Like, he wasn't afraid of the ball. He was kind of a ball hog when you really watch him play, you know, now. Um... But he knew, like he believed in himself. He was not beating himself up. 
And really the root cause of that, people can say all sorts of empowering words. The root cause of that is that he was able to practice self-compassion. That is the root cause of the best of the best. They're able to fail, fail fast and move forward. And that is a huge part of practicing self-compassion. The next one is a big one. Um, I don't know. This might be the biggest one out of all these. And it is worth. So we hear the word self-worth. And I don't really think we know what it is. I don't know what it is fully. But I think I'm inching closer towards it. So I think we mistake confidence for self-worth. I don't think they're the same thing. Confidence to me is something that kind of comes to us from external things that we do. So like we get the promotion, boom, we get a little boost of confidence. But do you notice how that confidence doesn't stay around long term? Now you got to find the next thing to do. Well, what's going to be the next promotion? What's going to be the next thing I'm going to do in my business? So it's kind of short lived. You know, it's like those things that like come in and it's like, cool. Or let's say you set a goal to lose 10 pounds and you lose 10 pounds and you put your clothes on and you're like, damn girl, like this is what I'm talking about. And you feel confident. Okay. But that only lasts for so long. And then if you gain the 10 pounds back, what happens? Uh, you feel like I can't believe I'm back here again. You know, here we are beating ourselves up again. So I think there's a lot there. I think for the men that I work with, I see a lot of their self-worth tied up in work. And that's kind of it. <laughs> and then for women, I see a lot of their self-worth tied up in work. And I personally have a lot of my self-worth tied up in my work for sure. But then I would say even bigger than that, I have more of my self-worth tied up in my body and the size of my body, how much I weigh, how much you know, my clothes fit, what size I'm wearing. And damn, if that isn't heartbreaking, right? And so the level of worth that I think I have is directly dependent on that. So that's where that difference between confidence and worth come into play. Worth is something that cannot be taken away. Nobody can take that from you, regardless of your body size, regardless of what job you have, regardless of whatever you're doing in the world. It's a, I wake up and just know because I took a breath this morning, I am worthy of whatever comes to me today. And that's a tough one. I think when we strip down all of the accomplishments, all of the things about us, and we really say, who are we? That is a really hard question to answer. I don't know how to answer that question. I've asked that question in sessions with people. I've asked that question in groups of people. Nobody knows how to answer that question. We introduce ourselves as the executive director or the CEO or the business owner or the mom or, you know, the wife, whatever that is. We introduce ourselves as the hats that we wear, the roles we play, but not as who we are. And God, if I ever get to that, if I can really truly define who I am, you know, I'm getting closer to that. I think that is freedom. So I think there's a whole lot when it comes to self-leadership of, of learning our worth, like truly believing that we are worthy of all of the good things, like all of the things that come our way. And then recognizing that things aren't happening to us, they're happening for us. And I have had enough disruptive life events to recognize that that is true. Really tough when you're in the moment. 
um, and you're in that tough life event. But we can see that as we move past it and we and move past is the wrong word. I'm going to I'm going to correct myself as we move forward because there are things we'll never get past. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from those things and that they weren't given to us for a reason. Okay. Next up, and this is another big one. I think I say the like the last three are really kind of bigger, like more just deeper internal where it's like this is unique to every single person. And that's something that I like to call soul care. I know I've talked to all of you about soul care before, but I think this is really critically important, especially in this journey, that first year of not drinking. I was bored as shit. I mean, I was bored all the time. You end up having a lot of free time when you're not drinking. Um, time goes by really fast when you come home on a Friday after work and pop open a bottle of wine and finish it. Suddenly it's 10 o'clock and you're like, oh, hey, look at that. So I think that's an important piece to to recognize is how much soul care is needed. And sometimes we have to really figure out what that is. When I ask people, what do you want to do? They don't know how to answer that question either. So one tactic or strategy that I like to use is, number one, we got to create some white space. Like this busy, busy, busy culture. And, you know, we pause the, the hit the pause button in the pandemic. And now I'm seeing people right back at it. You know, I'm experiencing a little more of that, although I'm very cautious about this busy culture. I've never believed in it ever once. I just followed the trend because I thought I was supposed to be doing that because that's what everybody else was doing. Put my kids in soccer, 18 months old, you know, did all this crap. And I like I just wholeheartedly don't believe we need to do that. Um, and I don't think it's healthy for me in particular to be over busy. So we have to create white space so we can actually create space for the things that we want to do. I always tell people to do something really weird. Like, what is the weirdest thing that you do? Maybe you did it as a kid. And do that. Like, let's like, let's just do some some crazy stuff and see what happens. I like to go back to, you know, that like six, seven, eight year old version of myself. And I have a photo of myself that I often will look at. And I'm like, what would she be doing right now? She'd be dancing around the house, acting out Beauty and the Beast, like the opening scene from Beauty and the Beast. I used to do that all the time as a kid when I was alone. I'd go in my room and do it if my family was there. Or if they were gone, I was like, hell yeah. Like I would have this whole stage. And I mean, it's like I was transported. It's like I was in my own personal musical. I do think music, you know, when I do this with people and I talk about it and I ask them, like, what's your soul care? I want to hear from people in the audience. What do you do for soul care? They're all unique. But I did a session or a keynote last week and I had a woman who she said her age. She said, I'm 78 years old. And I think there's so much wisdom to be gained from older women. So um, she said, I'm 78 years old. And I've noticed something with what people have been saying. Music was a part of every single person's soul care that they mentioned in some way, shape or form. And I'm like, yeah. music is amazing. I think it's one of those things that affects every single one of us. I don't care what political party you are attached to. I don't care how you were raised. I don't care. Like music has a way of speaking to our souls in such a deep way. And I do think there's something there. Like there's a lot of music involved in the soul care that I do. So this is an individual plan. Create your own unique plan of what soul care is. Tap into your senses. Like what do you love to smell? What do you love to hear? What do you love to taste? 
tap into all of that. And there's a lot of hints there for what soul care is for you. A big hint for me is that it's not big. Typically, soul care is not big. You don't have to jump on a plane and go somewhere. Typically, you don't have to spend any money. Typically, it's free. So that is self-leadership with a capital self. And I'm so passionate about this work. It's the through line of everything I do, including drinking less. And I hope it was helpful for you today. Have a great week. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can be reminded for my weekly Wednesday episodes. If you're curious about my programs and options of ways to work with me, check out rachelpritz.com. And if that's not interesting to you right now, no problem. Just keep listening along for free. Either way, I'm here for you.